Our sermon text is Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look today particularly at verses 11 to 17. Luke chapter 1, verses 11 to 17. And before we read that, we'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks this day for your word, the Holy Scriptures. Father, we remember the promise of Scripture that your word will not return to you void or having failed in the purpose for which you sent it forth, but that it will succeed. And so, Father, we pray for the victory and the power of your word here in our hearts this day. May our hearts be made humble and meek and ready to receive your word for that which it truly is, the very words of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we'll start reading from verse 5 and read from verse 5 through to verse 17. Remembering today we're studying from verse 11 to verse 17. Hear the word of God. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burned incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So just um, briefly reminding us of that which we looked at last week, we're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're told that they're faithful that they are righteous in their behaviour, they're believers who obey the commandments. They are good people. They are people whom the Lord loves. Yet they had a problem. They had no child. Zechariah himself was a priest of the division of Abijah and um, that did not mean that he lived or dwelled in the temple. It meant that he had a roster. There were 18,000 of the priestly families 18,000 men of the priestly family in Judea at this time. And um, let's be honest, you can't have 18,000 men conducting the ministry all at once. So they worked on a roster system and um, he came to the temple twice a year to perform his duties. To be chosen by Lot to enter the temple and to burn incense was the high point of his life as a priest. He would never get the opportunity again. He had obviously never had it before. This was it. This was his, um, this was the moment where he wanted nothing to go wrong. This was, um, this was to him something that he would remember all of his life, even if nothing in particular happened. If it had just gone as per usual, 
if it had just been a regular day of priestly work, he would have remembered it all of his life as the greatest day of his service as a priest. But God had other plans. It was going to be more than just a day of regular priestly service, more than just a day of offering up liturgical prayer on behalf of the nation. Picking up the text at verse 11, we read, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. An angel of the Lord. You say to me, I haven't seen an angel. Well, I can tell you that up until this moment, neither had Zechariah. People either accept that there are angels or they do not. There are angels. God sent him, sent to him an angel of the Lord. It's reminiscent in a way of the prayer of Daniel. If you remember in the Old Testament, Daniel prayed. He prayed concerning the sins of the people. He prayed concerning the state of the nation of Israel, particularly the people of Judah. And he was told that an angel had been sent. Zechariah finds or sees an angel standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. I imagine that whatever prayer he was praying, and it would most likely have been a recited prayer according to formula. You know, we, we often hear pray the Lord's Prayer. It doesn't mean it's a bad prayer. It's, it's the prayer we were taught to pray by the Lord Jesus himself. But he was praying according to formula and there appears an angel. I'm pretty sure he ran out of words at that moment. His lips got a bit uh, dry. We're told that when he saw him, fear fell upon him. He was troubled. That word troubled, trembling, tossing like a wave on the water, trembling, couldn't stand still. An angel appeared to him. My friends, we... We um, don't come into the presence of sinless beings very often. We come into the presence of forgiven sinners. We all know that we've got common ground here. We all know of the failings of our own human nature. And in love, in the Lord, we're willing to be um, gracious one to another. And if we're looking at one another in love, what we see in the people around us is the work of the Lord in their lives. And so we have love one for another. We, we see what Jesus is doing. But Zechariah here stands in the presence of a sinless spiritual being. It would have been very unsettling. I mean, first of all, he realises how many of them are there. And how did I not know that he was there in the first place? And now he is there. And he's powerful and he's sinless. Zechariah can't enter, in, enter into the temple apart from sacrifices. He himself is a sinner. The angel can appear in the temple whenever God gives permission. In the presence of an holy angel, he fears greatly. You know, it's really popular. I mean, you only... Do a YouTube search and you'll find thousands of people claiming that they've had conversations with angels, they've met angels, they've talked to angels, they get instructions from angels. I haven't heard any of them tell, tell me that the angel scared the daylights out of them. That when the angel appeared, 
They wondered if they were going to live or die because that's the biblical response to coming into the presence of a sinless creature, to coming into the presence of true holiness. Fear fell upon Zechariah. He was assaulted, as it were, by waves of fear. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Isn't this something to think about? I have no doubt that Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for a child for many, many a year. And then as they got older and as the way of the world happened and as the way of an ageing woman happened in the life of Elizabeth, I'm sure they in the end gave up on receiving a child and prayed not, Lord, give me a child, but Lord, give us the grace to understand why you didn't give us a child. Give us the grace to accept that which we cannot change. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. But interestingly, it's singular, your prayer, a prayer, a particular prayer. A prayer has been heard, a prayer that was in the past but has currency now. Your prayer has been heard. What would he have been praying for as a priest? What were the duties of a priest? He would have been praying for the nation Israel. He would have been praying for the people of God. He would have been interceding for the nation of Judea. If Zechariah was righteous by faith, and we know that he was, and if Zechariah was a man who was scrupulous in walking blamelessly concerning the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, what would he know about the nation around about him? What would he, what would he see? I mean, consider this. We here, we're We are faithful. We believe in the Lord Jesus. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We believe the Holy Scriptures. Our thoughts are not dominated by the same things that people outside of Christ are dominated by. We think differently. And the way the world is in a way, falling to pieces at this moment. What do you see? I mean, people are just totally and utterly dominated at this moment by fear. Fear of what? Fear of mortality. You know, and you can't even publish the numbers. It's, it's amazing. Um, one of our friends, you might have seen his post on the internet during the week on Facebook. He looked at the figures and he'd published nothing other than a table or a graph that showed the official figures concerning the mortality rate of this current disease. Do you know in the end he took the post down? And there's a reason. His own family members, his own non-Christian family members, and our friend whom I'm speaking of is a Christian, but his own non-Christian family members were so deeply upset and angry at him for having put those figures out there, that um, he felt that he might be being a hindrance to them, that they would not listen to his testimony concerning the Lord, and therefore he'd better take it down. Absolutely and utterly dominated by fear. That is the situation that these people are in. 
And they're so dominated by fear and so utterly convinced that COVID is some kind of plague that has the effectiveness of a cross between pneumonia and leprosy and meningitis and, and Ebola, and therefore it must be going to kill everyone it touches, that they don't even want to hear someone say to them, look, if you're below 70, the death rate is below 0.05%. They get angry and attacked him. They're dominated by something that is not dominating you and I. Now, I'm not saying I, look, I'm not saying I want to catch any disease. I'm not saying I want to get sick. I'm not saying I want any of you to get sick. I'm not saying I want any of you to catch any disease. I'm not saying I want anyone here to die in the next two weeks of any particular disease. But we've got a comfort and a hope. If the disease visits us, and if the disease in the providence of God took someone from us, what would be our hope? They're with the Lord, which is better by far. And no matter how they left this world, what would we know? There is nothing that would make them want to come back. They're with the Lord. Who would want to be here? No matter how good a day we have, no matter how good a time we have, no matter how much fellowship and joy we have in our lives, no matter how much God blesses us, we have this hope and this hope dominates our lives. And so whilst we're careful and, you know, I'm careful and I'm washing my hands and I'm just trying to be sensible about all of these things, we don't let this fear that is absolutely dominating the world around us dominate us. Zechariah was a believer in what Jesus called an unbelieving and faithless nation. Think about it. It doesn't mean he was alone. It doesn't mean there were no other believers in the nation. But what did Zechariah know about his nation? He must have known it. He was a believer. He knew the word of God. What did he know? He knew that this people around him who were calling themselves the people of God, who were saying that they were the offspring of Abraham, he knew that they were not faithful believers. He knew that their worship was heartless, empty, ritualized, that they paid lip service to God, but not heart service. And so in his role as a priest, having been set there to intercede for the nation, and the angel says to him, your prayer has been heard. Now, I, it's, it's one of those situations where that which you long for, think of it this way, let's try and stretch it out a bit. Zechariah, says the angel, that which you and Elizabeth longed for all those years ago, 30, 40, 50 years ago when you were actually of childbearing, when your wife was of childbearing age, when you were a young couple and you were hoping for children, and that which you have been praying for as a priest, the reconciliation of Israel and the salvation of the people of God, Zechariah, your prayer has been answered. Your prayer has been answered. You are going to be given a son and your son is the forerunner, the announcer, as it were, of the coming saviour. Your prayer has been answered. And your wife, looking now back at verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call 
his name John. Now, in the Bible, when the parents don't get to choose a name, when, when God actually sends a message to them, that is the name, you know you're dealing with someone special. Jesus, which is um, basically how in English we've gotten, um, it's actually Joshua, Yeshua, Joshua, Yeshua. Mary and Joseph were told that he was to be called Jesus. God had a name, John. Sort of translated, you're getting to something like the graciousness of God. Or God is gracious. John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Now there's something. He will be great before the Lord. Now, you know, I'm inviting you now to think of what you know of John the Baptist and the life of John the Baptist and the death of John the Baptist. He was a prophet, though he did no miraculous works. He preached a gospel of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and he baptised people. He was called the Baptist. It was very controversial because baptism at that point of time in Jewish society was what happened to Gentiles when Gentiles became believers in the one God. A Gentile coming into, as it were, the Jewish nation was baptised, dipped, washed, etc. John was baptising Jews. Those who were in power, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the priesthood, though some of them did come to John and John um, rebuked them severely and called them serpents, (laughs) told them to go away, you hypocrites, I want nothing to do with you. On the whole, they did not recognise his ministry as legitimate. On the whole, they rejected his ministry. Those who were the powers in the nation rejected his ministry. But we're told here that he's great in the sight of God. And then consider his death, my friends. Consider how he died. An incestuous family had power over John. He was was imprisoned and basically... You know, a a girl of doubtful morality danced in such an impressive way before a group of men that when the leader of the group said, I'll give you whatever you want, right, he was asking for something there. You know, there was a trade going on there. He's seen the girl dance. He's thought, "Mm, this is great. I'll give you whatever you want. And the girl was able to say, kill John the Baptist. Cut off his head, put it on a plate and bring it before me and I'll give you whatever you want. John died because a pretty girl of loose morality said kill him. That's not, um, how would you put it? That's not a heroic death. The great warrior fighting against the enemies of God, taking a hundred evil people with him as he you know, fought in the battlefield, the the great prophetic preacher preaching the word of God until the people in rebellion killed him, etc., etc. I'm not saying John ever stopped preaching, but you get what I'm saying. It was not a glorious death. It was not a glorious death. You see, John 
is always operating as a forerunner and a pointer to the Lord Jesus. And in some ways, John's life in some ways actually reflects the life of Jesus. There's nothing noble or glorious about being crucified on a Roman cross, naked and mocked, drowning in your own bodily fluids. Yet the only one, according to the words of Jesus that we read earlier, I tell you among those born of woman, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, Jesus was born of women. John and Jesus were great in the eyes of God. Remember, Jesus is the son of God in whom the father is well pleased. But they're not great in any worldly term. They're not great in any any worldly measure. They're not great. They're not famous heroes. My friends, being great in the sight of God does not necessarily mean that we're great in the sight of the people around us. It just does not necessarily translate. Being great in the sight of God does not mean that we're going to live what you might call a blessed life according to worldly standards. Being great in the sight of God doesn't even mean that we're going to have an easy or um, noble death. It doesn't mean that. Being great in the sight of God means that we're faithful. It means that we're obedient. It means that we do as we're told. It means that we speak according to the will of God. You will have joy and gladness. Looking at verse 14 again of Luke chapter 1, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. Think about it, my friends. You know, having a child, bringing a child into the world, it's a great day. I remember the birth of every one of my children. I remember the birth of my firstborn son, Sam. Great day, exciting, emotional. Couldn't believe what God had blessed me with. But Zechariah here is told that his son will be great in the sight of the Lord, that he will be faithful. From the moment you have that child, what are you praying? Anyone here who's a parent. From the moment you have that child, what are you praying? You're praying that they will go on to know and to serve the Lord. Lisa and I, we, you know, it, it, it got to a routine. We had that we, when I say we, we repeated this, we didn't repeat it in vain, but it summed up exactly what we meant. We prayed that our children would grow strong in spirit, mind and body and that they would grow to know and to serve the Lord with all their heart and soul. We both prayed that probably every day of their lives. And now we've got a grandchild. And guess what we're praying? When you know that your children are faithful servants of God, that's even more blessed than getting the child in the first place. The first birth is exciting and it's a great blessing and you're thankful to the Lord. But when you know that God has granted to your child the second birth, oh yeah, (laughs) I'm telling you, it doesn't get better. It really doesn't. That is a gift from God that is just so precious. Notice at verse 15, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine and strong drink. He must not drink wine and strong drink. Now, this is interesting. Now, 
There are two ways this could go, and I'll just give you both ways, and then I'll tell you the way I understand this. Many would say perhaps it's the vow of a Nazarene or a Nazarite. I don't know if you've read your Old Testament law, but if you're reading the Old Testament law, there were people who were servants of God who promised as Nazarites never, ever to touch wine or strong drink. They also promised that they would never cut their hair. And that was the vow of the Nazarite. And so there are many who wonder if John was a Nazarite, if he had taken the vows of a Nazarite. But there's another commandment in the Old Testament that I want us to have a look at. And so I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 10. Now, we're dropping into Leviticus just after Nadab and Bahihu. Um, we'll actually read that, Abihu, Bahihu. We'll just read from verse 1. Leviticus chapter 10, start reading at verse 1. Now, this is the first day in which worship happens at the tabernacle of the Lord that the Israelites had built according to the commandment of the Lord relayed to them through Moses. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled and do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting lest you die it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, when you enter into the presence of the Lord. The second possibility concerning John and the commandment that he is not to drink wine or strong drink is that he is one who enters into the presence of the Lord. He is one who is not to, as it were, remember the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians gives the commandment, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. John could, in a way, be something like a priest entering into the presence of God. Remember, John comes into the presence of the Lord when Elizabeth and Mary meet later in the Gospel of Luke, and there John, as it were, comes to life. Now, I'm not saying he was not already alive, but... John leaps in the womb of Elizabeth. So I would suggest it's more to do with the priestly command that a priest should not enter into the Lord having drunken any wine or strong drink because we're told, reading on, and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John is going to live his life in the presence of God even from his mother's womb. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, I'll, I'll just take a little byway here and have a little argument with imaginary people here. Often I have heard many people, teachers that I respect, 
who believe in the baptism of infants come to this verse and you'd say, you see, John was a believer even before he was born. Why should we not therefore baptise infants? Because they could be regenerate even from before they were born. Well, I just want to answer that question. First of all, you do not take special examples and then use a special example as the basis for regular practice. Where else in Scripture do you read of a baby being filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb? Jeremiah, it says he was consecrated before he was even born, but apart from that, you don't. You know, we don't. A donkey once spoke. Do we bring a donkey in and put a Bible in front of it and expect to hear a sermon? No, it was an unusual occurrence. It was, it, was a, it was a special, miraculous providence at the hand of God for a particular purpose. Furthermore, I would say to you that John was conceived in sin and saved in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Later on, Mary and Elizabeth meet and Elizabeth says that the baby leapt in her womb. The promise of God was that from the womb he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is evidence of God's electing grace. God can save whom he will, when he will, where he will, in the way that he will. And God can indeed save a baby unborn if God so chooses to do. But it's not regular practice. You know, it, it's not something that you should in any way expect if, if you are a young married couple waiting to have, hoping to have children, would I give you good advice if I was saying to you, well, look, Elizabeth and Zechariah were way past the years of regular childbirth, but God gave them a child in their old age. So don't even try. <laughs> you know, you're young now, but that doesn't matter. God can give you a baby when you're 80 or 90 years old. It's biblical, isn't it? <laughs> and you're going to say to me, that's not biblical advice, mate. That's stupid advice. God worked a miracle on this occasion, as he worked a miracle for Abraham and Sarah, that Sarah would conceive in her old age. But you don't expect a special miracle for the birth of a special child to be that which God repeats on and on and on throughout history. You're a fool if you think that way. So... Yes, John was made regenerate in the womb. He was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Notice now we're told what his ministry will be. Verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Stop. Ask yourself some questions. What does this mean? If the children of Israel need to be turned to the Lord their God, where are they at this moment or what direction are they moving in at this moment? You know, if we say to someone who is troubled and their life is falling apart around them and we can see that they're destroying themselves, you need to turn to the Lord. What are we saying? Turn from your sins. Turn from your idolatry. Turn from your willful rebelliousness. You need to repent and seek the forgiveness of God. What's the ministry of John the Baptist? He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Isn't that interesting? 
They need turning. They're not faithful. You know, the Apostle Paul, he said it, didn't he? Not all who were born of Abraham are the sons of Abraham. But it's the children of the promise. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, and he, John the Baptist, will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Go before who? Okay, I often tell you, or you know, when we're going through various books of the Bible, various passages, I often tell you that the strongest testimonies as to the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, are often not in the things that are said directly of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in the things that are said in other places and in other ways. Verse 16 finishes with, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, and he, now that's John, will go before him. Who's he going before? Work out the context. Who's, who? John the Baptist has a ministry. It involves turning the people of Israel to somebody. Who is that somebody? It is the Lord, their God. And John the Baptist is going to go before whom? The Lord, their God. And who did John the Baptist come before? Who does John the Baptist go before? Whom does John the Baptist prepare the way for? Whom does John the Baptist proclaim and announce? Who does John the Baptist testify to? John's ministry is all pointed towards this one person. You know, you read in the Bible that there were disciples of John. Do you know that in a way that's that's sad? If, if, if they went too far in their discipleship of John the Baptist, that is sad. Why? Because John's whole ministry was what? Become a disciple of Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Seek forgiveness in Jesus' name. He is the Lamb of God. He is the sin offering. He is the one in whom you find salvation. He is the one in whom you find redemption. He is the Messiah. He is the one. And he will go before him. He will go before the Lord their God, the God of Israel. If you were reading the Old Testament and you read the Lord your God, the Lord your God, who's being spoken of? We all know Yahweh the God of the old covenant, the Lord your God, the same, the same God that David spoke of in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, the Lord your God. And so here we have it. The angel, the angel speaking, Gabriel speaking, tells Zechariah that his son John would go before the Lord, the God of Israel. And we know that he went before Jesus. He was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one who made the way ready for Jesus. The angel Gabriel has just said by implication that Jesus is God, the eternally begotten Son of God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Significant, important. This means a lot to Zechariah, I can tell you for sure. 
Zechariah knows where the book of Malachi ended, where the word of God to his people Israel ended. Zechariah knows that the promise was that one would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He knows. He knows what this means. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a a people prepared. Think of it. The passage in Malachi comes with the threat of utter destruction. Utter destruction. Do not hear the preaching of this one and there will be utter destruction. And John the Baptist, in his role as the forerunner of the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to be used by God to turn the hearts of the, fa- of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is a nation that has been, as it were, separated from its spiritual heritage. Separated from its spiritual heritage. You know, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he speaks of the fact that they can speak of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as being um, their forerunners, their spiritual heritage, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But there's a separation. There's a faithlessness. Their sins have come between them and their God. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. I would take this as meaning that this people Israel have, on the whole, turned away from the study of the scriptures. Turned away from knowing the wisdom of God. Turned away from learning the wisdom of God. Storing up the scriptures in their heart. Respecting the word of God for that which it truly is. And they're disobedient. They're separated from the fathers, from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They're separated from the God of Abraham. They're a disobedient people, an unwise people who do not live according to the commandments of God. What did Jesus say? This people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And he was quoting the prophet Isaiah when he said that. They worship me with their lips, but they are far from me. Their heart is not in it. But John, in his ministry, is to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. His way of living, his way of preaching, the things that he said were to prepare people for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a way, this is what all preaching is. It's not in me or in any other preacher to convert anyone. We don't have that power. We don't have that ability. We don't have the ability to uh, change a person's heart. It's not in any person. This happens according to the power of God's Holy Spirit. If we're people who share the gospel, we're just mouthpieces. We're just being used. We're tools fitted by God, put into a place and a time to say a certain thing that God will use and bless John's ministry was to be powerful. 
John's ministry was to make people ready to receive the Lord. When Jesus called his disciples, amongst those whom he called, some of them were disciples of John the Baptist. They left John and started to follow Jesus. John had prepared their hearts. He'd made them ready for the Lord. And as people came out to John to be baptised in their thousands, we're told, in their thousands, his preaching was preparing them for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was preaching concerning the sins of the nation. He was preaching concerning not only the sins of the nation, but the sins of individuals. He was telling this nation that was under, under the delusion that they were righteous and blessed. Oh, no, you're not. You are not righteous. You don't have all you need. You say you're the people of God, but you don't live like the people of God. If someone came here and looked closely at this nation, they would not see godliness. They would not be able to look upon you and have some idea of what your God is like. You are living like devils. In sharing the gospel, the challenge to us is always we've got to be prepared to tell people where they are right now. The challenge is always you've got to be prepared. We've got, we've got to be prepared to tell people that they are actually separated from God. Not that everything is okay. Not that all you need to do is say you believe in Jesus. But we need to be willing to point out to people that whilst sin is dominating your life, you will never know the love of God. You will never enjoy the peace that comes by the power of God's Holy Spirit. You will never know the forgiveness of sins and the joy that comes to a person who is found in Christ, found in God. It's no fun pointing out sin. People don't usually like it. It takes um, a work of the Holy Spirit to make someone prepared to hear it. Yet, that's the challenge before us. We've got to present the gospel, the whole gospel. We've got to point out that uh, people in their sin need salvation from the power of sin, from God's judgment upon sin. They need salvation to, that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we preach in this way, well, maybe we'll get to be great in the eyes of the Lord. But one thing's for certain, we're not going to be great in the eyes of the world around us. We're going to be fools. We're going to be rejected. That's the way it is. It's always been the way. You know, the judgments of God, they're too high for the people who do not know the Lord. They're, they're, they're out of their vision, as it were. My friends, the ministry of John the Baptist, it still, in a way, continues. The ministry of proclaiming the coming of the Lord. The ministry of seeking to prepare a way for the Lord. We can't do it in a way. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things. The scripture, for example, commands us to love one another as we love ourselves. The scripture commands us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. The Lord Jesus commanded Lazarus to get up and walk out of the grave. Well, let me be honest with you. Telling me to love my neighbour as I love myself, 
telling me to love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength and telling me, oh, I'm sorry, and telling Lazarus to get up and walk out of the grave in a way they're all the same thing. What do I mean? Well, in human terms, they're impossible. In human terms, they're impossible. The Lord commanded me to love one another as he has loved you. Wow. In human terms, they're impossible. But by the gift of the power of God's Holy Spirit, God's people obey. Sometimes very weakly. Sometimes we stumble. Sometimes, you know, you wonder if we're succeeding at all. But we are being conformed into the image and the likeness of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. We were predestined to be made like Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 8. We were predestined to be made like our elder brother. And it's happening now. And so, my friends, it takes the power of God's Holy Spirit to make preaching effective. But that doesn't mean we don't preach. It means we preach trusting that the Lord is blessing the gospel, trusting that the Lord is using the preached gospel to call people to salvation and repentance. We go out there, we do as we're told to do. We point to the Lord Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Redeemer of the people of God. He is the one in whom we find our salvation. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, may we indeed be filled with the Holy Spirit. May we indeed be your servants, faithful and obedient. And Lord, we all of us here are aware that in the eyes of the world, we are no great thing. Yet, Father, we pray that by the work of your Spirit in conforming us into the likeness of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, we too will be seen as great in the eyes of our God. We know, Father, that this can only be done by your grace and according to your will and by your power. Yet, Father, we pray that you would make us faithful and obedient, that we would love you, love and serve you with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength, and that we would love our neighbour as ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.